welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. Today's episode features content from an educational program titled Modifying ART in Virologically Suppressed Patients. During this podcast, Dr. David Malbranch, a board-certified internal medicine physician and HIV specialist, discusses modifying ART in virologically suppressed patients, including switching ART in a patient with daily pill fatigue, switching ART to avoid comorbidities, and simplifying ART in the context of known multidrug resistance. For more information about Dr. Malbranch and for a link to the full online educational program, including downloadable slides specific to today's podcast, please visit the link in the show notes for today's episode. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Malbranch has to say about modifying ART in virologically suppressed patients. So for the program overview, what we're going to be talking about today is through a case-based discussion, uh, talking about modifying ART in virologically suppressed patients. We're going to focus on three scenarios. The first is switching ART in a patient who uh, is talking about daily pill fatigue. Uh, Second, we'll be switching ART to avoid comorbidities. The third will be simplifying ART in the context of known multidrug resistance. And then hopefully we'll leave time for questions and answers. All right, so switching ART in a patient with daily pill fatigue. This is patient uh, case one. This is the background. 39-year-old MSM who was diagnosed with HIV in 2015, shortly after being found unconscious on the street and brought to the hospital by police. His toxicology screen was positive for cocaine, uh, alcohol, and amphetamines. When he woke up, he acknowledged using drugs and selling sex for money. He agreed to HIV testing, which came back positive at that time. And at the time of his laboratory diagnosis for HIV, uh, his other labs, he had a T-cell count of 334, a viral load of 34,000, no noted drug resistance, and all his hepatology, uh, hepatitis serologies were negative, including A, B, and C. He was started on Elvitegravir, Pobacistat, FTC, and TAF, uh, one pill daily, and rapidly achieved viral suppression. He was transferred to an inpatient substance abuse uh, disorder, substance use disorder treatment program, and has been in recovery since then with excellent medication adherence. No other medical problems except for intermittent STIs, diagnosed at routine screens. And as you're seeing him, he's expressing that he's tired of taking daily pill for HIV. It reminds him of his time of his diagnosis and his difficulties with addiction. We're basically talking about reasons to consider an ART switch during viral suppression. And for an appropriate reason, particularly with this patient, it's to simplify a regimen or reduce the pill burden or dosing frequency. So to do that, let's start by looking at the ATLAS and FLARE trials, which were long-acting, looking at long-acting intramuscular cabotegravir and rilpivirine after initial virologic suppression with oral therapy. These were both randomized trials. If, uh, as you can see from the diagram with ATLAS, they had adults on stable ART with a viral load less than 50 for at least six months with no previous virological uh, failure reporting. And they were stratified according to split up between either uh, starting with the oral lead-in of cabotegravir and rilpivirine, and then progressing to the intramuscular injections at week four, or they stayed on their uh, baseline antiretroviral therapy. Now, with the FLARE trial, that was with antiretroviral naive patients who had a viral load of greater than 1,000 copies, hep B surface antigen negative, uh, no RAMs with NNRTIs, but had a K103 that was allowed to be permitted. And these patients in the FLARE trial actually started on a regimen of dalutegravir, abacavir, and 3TC daily for 20 weeks, and then were randomized to either go through the oral lead-in with cabotegravir and rilpivirine, or 
progress to the intramuscular or stay continued on the dilutegravir, abacavir, and 3TC. The primary endpoint was uh, looking at uh, viral load greater than 50 copies at week 48. So let's look at what they found. For the ATLAS study, um, we can see that the virologic outcomes at uh, week 48 uh, were comparable um, to continuing the baseline therapy. You see 92.5% and 95.5% for the baseline uh, antiretroviral therapy. And when you look over the right side of the slide with the confidence intervals, and when examining the primary endpoint, which was a viral load greater than 50 copies, um, long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine was non-inferior uh, to the baseline art therapy. And the same goes for the secondary endpoint, which was looking at a viral load less than 50 copies. So as you can see, this switch um, actually worked pretty well at 48, week, 48 weeks in um, for patients who were already virologically suppressed. And this next slide talks about the, the FLARE trial and looking at what's going on there. And you see kind of similar results. You see comparable virologic success with the patients at 93.6 and 93.3 compared with the baseline regimen of dalutegravir, abacavir, and 3TC. And again, when you're looking at the primary endpoint and secondary endpoints of either uh, viral load greater than 50 copies or viral load less than 50 copies in both instances, long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine was non-inferior to the dalutegravir, abacavir, and 3TC. So again, you have good results looking from this that you can maintain virologic suppression um, at at least 48 weeks with both these therapies. This is looking at both the ATLAS and FLARE trials with treatment emergent resistance with long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine. And these are studies from Russia and France with both. Um, and you can see you had some uh, non-nucleoside uh, RAMs coming up, some NSTE RAMs coming up. Of note, that L741 that you see um, it wasn't, wasn't anticipated or is not expected to impact CAB sensitivity. Uh, but 103 of the 483 patients had that mutation in FLARE, uh, 64 from Russia, 60 of those had a subtype A. The, the main part of this slide is at the bottom where it says that the presence of this polymorphism did not negatively affect the proportion of achieving uh, a viral load less than 50 copies at week 48. So although these mutations did emerge, they didn't have an impact on the ultimate goal, which was to uh, maintain virologic suppression. And then this is just looking at, at the ATLAS and FLARE trials, patient reported preference for drug delivery. Um, and you can see both in ATLAS and the FLARE trials, uh, by high percentage um, preferences, patients did prefer the long-acting intramuscular injection. So in this time where we have a new option of long-acting intramuscular injections, um, this is a discussion we'll have with our patients about what options and if they uh, seem to prefer that, that's something we should go with in the future. Just a word about long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine. It was approved by the FDA on January 21st of this year, so only three months ago. Um, the specific FDA indication, this is important to keep in mind, as a complete regimen for HIV-1 infection treatment switch in adults who are virologically suppressed on a stable regimen. So again, making sure that someone's virologically suppressed before they transfer over. They have to have no history of treatment failure or no known or suspected resistance to either cabotegravir or rilpivirine. It requires an oral lead-in dosing for about a month to assess their tolerability to both those medications. And then finally, this is the part I try to emphasize with people who are learning about this now. You want to initiate the intramuscular gluteal injection of both of them on the last day of the oral lead-in and then continue the injections every month thereafter. Now, 
What I try to explain to patients because they don't understand, they think it's an injection like ceftriaxone or um, sometimes the maximum dose of penicillin treating for um, syphilis, and it's just going to be one shot and one butt cheek. And what I explain to them is that it's actually two medications, two shots, or uh, as the, the marketer of the medication mentions that you can actually put it in the same butt cheek, but they have to at least be two uh, centimeters apart. So it's important to explain that to the patients so they know what to expect, especially when it comes to needles, because we know a lot of patients have problems with needles or are afraid of needles, um, including myself. All right, so some questions to consider, and I'll just throw these out here so you can think about these, but then also um, I'll throw out some other ones. Which of your patients would be good candidates? How would you counsel them about the pros and cons and what concerns do you personally have? I think one of the things that I've been hearing from a lot of my colleagues is how are our clinics gonna handle this? As of now, uh, the past 30 years of treating HIV, we've been basically giving people pills that they get a prescription for and then they go home and take on their own. This is the first time where someone's actually had to come in. So how is your clinic gonna set up for that? Who's gonna provide the injections? What space are you going to use for it? How is the clinic flow for patients who are coming in for those monthly injections um, going to be uh, initiated? And I think those are the questions that are facing us as we move forward with this. This is just a note of caution with a case report um, of a, a case of acute hepatitis B in a patient um, on cabotegravir and ropivirine. And this was a 31-year-old uh, MSM who was diagnosed with HIV in late 2016, started antiretroviral therapy in the FLARE study with dalutegravir, 3TC, and abacavir. No prior markers of uh, HPV infection, got undetectable within a couple months. Um, and then was switched over to oral cabotegravir and ropivirine and then to the long-acting injectable version, got vaccinations for both HBV and uh, hepatitis A um, in late 2017 and early 2018, but then in mid-2018 developed transaminitis with his AST and ALT uh, bumping up and then was found to have acute Hep B infection with the surface antigen and even the E antigen positivity and a viral load in the 229 million range. Um, respective testing of back in 2018, they found he had no detectable um, serum antibody or surface antibody uh, hepatitis B uh, antibody. So obviously the vaccination didn't take that we see sometimes in, in our patients. And then the patient was switched over to TDF, FTC, and uh, dalutegravir, which TDF and FTC are both going to have activity against hepatitis B and things normalized after that. So the point of this slide is just um, considering and following closely if you have someone on cabotegravir and ropivirine, uh, make sure you're, they're vaccinated for hepatitis B and make sure you're checking hep B surface antigen um, and following up with hep B uh, surface antibodies or even core antibodies if you're worried about them being exposed and getting natural immunity that way to follow up and see how they're doing. So this slide talks about uh, factors that may contribute to the risk of treatment failure with long-acting cabotegravir and ropivirine. This is a, a post hoc analysis. I'm sorry if you hear uh, birds behind me, they're chirping. Um, so some factors associated with an increased odds of confirmed virologic failure. You had some baseline uh, RAMs that were actually at baseline for ropivirine, um, a lower trough uh, for ropivirine to begin with, a baseline HIV-1 subtype of A1 or A6, and of note, a BMI greater than or equal to 30. And what you do want to remark here, there have been some studies that are out there looking at this long-acting injectable version of therapy at Q8-week dosing instead of the Q4-week dosing. So just notably from this slide, 
um, that factor was not contributing to the risk of treatment failure. So the difference between Q4 weeks and Q8 weeks, although it's not FDA approved for Q8 week treatment yet, that may be something that we see in the near future. So direct to inject, this is uh, the question people want to ask, do we really need the oral lead-in? Uh, and this was a question that they asked in the flare extension study where they took participants who were on dalutegravir, abacavir, and 3TC um, who achieved viral suppression in the 20-week induction phase, and they could switch to monthly cabotegravir and ropivirine at week 100. The switchers, as you can see, randomized to groups with or without oral cab and um, ropivirine lead-in. And as you can see uh, from the bar graph here, uh, with no lead-in in the blue uh, color, virologic suppression was even greater among patients um, when they didn't have the oral lead-in. So again, I think since this is very new on the market, very new FDA approval, what we'll see over time is perhaps a modification of how it's administered or perhaps some other different options. Some people may choose to do oral lead-in. Some, pe some people may go directly to injecting. And these are some questions that you want to look at for discussion just in general when you're considering patients for this long-acting uh, option. Would you still consider it? For the case patient, if they had a history of treatment interruptions, if they have transmitted K103N mutation, which confers resistance to efavirenz, if this was someone of childbearing potential, um, if it was during the time of the COVID-19 surge and we're seeing in certain cities that we're still in some surges or are developing some surges now despite the vaccinations, if this person was a frequent traveler who spent weeks out of uh, at a time out of the country, or if they were not hepatitis B immune, these are questions that you have to consider um, going into this. So it's going to be complicated. And I would, you know, encourage everyone to talk to your colleagues, speak to other experts, um, and bounce things off of each other, or directly contact the manufacturer to make sure, you know, you're following the guidelines and ask questions when they come up, because I think we're all learning about this as we move forward. All right, so let's go to switching ART to avoid comorbidities. This is patient two. 66-year-old woman diagnosed with HIV in 2008 when her husband was uh, hospitalized for pneumocystis urovici pneumonia. Her initial CD4 count was 480, viral load of 67,000. She started efavirenz, FTC, and TDF, later switched to reataz or um, atazanavir, boosted atazanavir plus FTC and TDF because she had uh, CNS effects. Ended up ultimately on darunavir boosted plus FTC and TDF because uh, she was taking acid reducing medication for reflux and that would impact uh, the absorption um, and drug levels of the atazanavir. And finally, she switched to a single pill of darunavir, cobacistat, FTC and TAF in 2019, which she tolerates well. Although it's not mentioned on the slide, um, I'm assuming that tolerating well means she's virally suppressed and not having any side effects since this is a talk about switching in the um, case of viral suppression. So additional medical history, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, EGFR of 45, uh, obesity, current medications, atorvastatin, amlodipine, valsartan, metformin, pantoprazole, is a non-smoker and has a strong family history of cardiac disease. This nowadays is kind of the typical patient profile that we're seeing coming in as people are living longer, getting older, side effects both from HIV, uh, the medications themselves, or just developing over time um, are introducing a lot of comorbidities into play when we're considering these switches. So when you consider switching regimens for people who are virologically suppressed, if you look on the left side of this um, slide, looking specifically at drug resistance, so review the ART history, what they've been on before, uh, any genotype 
or phenotype-resistant tests that are available. If you're uncertain, um, only switch to a new regimen that you know will probably uh, impact the virus, what's been successful in the past. Within class switches, as long as are okay, as long as they don't have resistance to drugs in that class. And then obviously consult an expert if you have multi-class resistant. You also want to take a look at safety, uh, tolerance, drug-drug um, interactions, check for HLA-B5701 to make sure they're not uh, hypersensitive to abacavir. And then the comorbidities that we mentioned before are all things we should be reviewing when we're uh, actually anticipating switching someone who is virologically stable. So again, this is the same, same slide that we saw earlier, reasons to consider an ART switch during viral suppression. And again, for this patient, looking at the points to enhance tolerability or decrease toxicity, and also to prevent or mitigate drug-drug or drug-food interactions. This slide, the general point, this is data collection of adverse events of anti-HIV medications, the DAD study. And the take-home point from this slide is that Darunavir is associated with increased cardiovascular risk. I want to draw your attention to the, the two bullet points on the right, because that kind of sums up everything. So the cumulative use of ritonavir-boosted Darunavir but not ritonavir-boosted atazanavir was independently associated with small but progressively increasing uh, risks of cardiovascular events. And then the IAS uh, ART guidelines recommended switching from either a bacavir-based or PI-based containing regimens, except for atazanavir, in patients with or, um, uh, with or at high risk for a cardiovascular event. So again, these are the patients that may come in with a family history, hyperlipidemia, uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, smoking history. So these are the ones, according to the IAS guidelines, you want to switch from anything that's a Bacavir related or PI-based related, um, except atazanavir, because that could increase their risk for having a cardiovascular event. And I think nowadays, a, a lot of people are seeing that our patients are doing extremely well with regards to HIV, and they're chugging along at a viral load of less than 20 copies the problem that we're having is managing a lot of these primary care concerns. I'm an internal medicine doctor, so this is what I've been trained in. But if you've been trained primarily in, in infectious diseases or you've only been seeing infectious diseases, um, it adds a little bit more to the plate to have to handle those primary care concerns. So we do have a lot of information on switching from suppressive ART to a single tablet regimen. And this is a list of some of the Non the studies, the phase three studies that have been uh, completed that showed non-inferior efficacy. Um, you can see from the 380-4030 study, Brave, Emerald. We'll talk about some of these, Tango and SWORD 1 and 2, um, where people were switched from a more complicated regimen to a single tablet regimen, and it was shown to be non-inferior with regards to maintaining uh, virologic suppression. The ones highlighted in orange are ones where uh, they included patients who had uh, past resistance. So that's important to note as well. We'll talk about that in a, a little more in a few minutes. So with the SWORD 1 and 2, um, these studies were switched to dalutegravir and rilpivirine versus continuing baseline uh, antiretroviral therapy in virologically suppressed adults. Again, this is a randomized open-label uh, phase 3 trial in adults who had stable antiretrovirals, either INSTI and NRTI or PI plus two NRTIs, and had maintained a viral load uh, of less than 50 uh, for greater than six months. The primary endpoint, uh, which they found um, maintaining the viral load less than 50 copies, was maintained in 95% of the patient in each arm at week 48. Uh, and then 10 out of 990, or roughly about 1%, 
uh, confirmed virologic withdrawals were through week 100. And of these 10, treatment-emergent NNRTI mutations documented in about three out of 10, all from the early switch arm. As you can see at the bottom, kind of listing these mutations, you see the K101, the E138. Uh, before those three patients, the viral load at the last measurement was less than 50 copies, 55 copies, and 300 copies, respectively. So again, when you look at this evidence, when you look at the science here, um, being able to maintain virologic suppression with a switch from a baseline uh, regimen of free medications to just dolutegravir and rilpivirine uh, from this study was very successful and not inferior to the baseline treatment. And with real-world experience with dolutegravir and uh, rilpivirine in the United States, this slide uh, demonstrates some findings from a retrospective analysis looking at clinical characteristics and outcomes with people living with HIV uh, switching to dolutegravir and rilpivirine between January 2018 and December 2018 in the OPERA study. So this is only about three years ago. The baseline characteristics of note, 68% had a CD4 count of greater than 500, and 63% initiated uh, ART after 2013, so at least five years in experience with many of them. And of note, that last bullet point, 88% remained on the medication for 12 months, Virologic failure only occurred in about 1.5%, and of the 42 patients who discontinued, 41% of them were virologically suppressed. And you can see the baseline demographics of the patients that were switching to dolutegravir rilpivirine in the blue bars down here. But again, the real-world experience kind of matches what we saw in the study previously. Just a note about rilpivirine and acid-reducing therapies, and um, there's a lot of words on this page. The basic take-home message is that for antacids and H2 receptor blockers or antagonists, um, it's advised, it, it's going to reduce the concentration of uh, rilpivirine in the bloodstream. So there's all these kind of, you know, things we have to go through about, you know, no change if you take the antacid greater than uh, two hours before rilpivirine or greater than four hours after. And those are both the recommendations to use with caution. Uh, with proton pump inhibitors, um, it's actually recommended to not co-administer proton pump inhibitors with rilpivirine because it decreases the plasma concentrations and won't make it effective. Long story short, if you have another option and you have somebody with GERD uh, and you have somebody who's on a proton pump inhibitor or antacids or H2 blockers, Given people's lives and how complicated they are and how they may not be able to take it uh, two hours before or four hours after or the other um, kind of hourly uh, recommendations with it, it may be best just to choose another option. So just the take home is to be careful with that, especially with rilpivirine and people who uh, have GERD and are on medication for it. Let's look at switching from boosted PIs to Bictegravir FTC and TAF. Uh, this happens a lot and people have a lot of questions about it. This was from a uh, multi-center randomized open label actively controlled phase three non-inferiority trial where you had adults living with HIV who had an EGFR greater than 50, a plasma viral load less than 50 copies for at least six months um, and on a regimen of a boosted PI. And then they were randomized to either continue on that regimen or switch to Bictegravir, FTC, and TAF. The primary endpoint that they looked at was the viral load of greater than or equal to 50 copies by uh, week 48. And what they found, that second bullet point at the bottom, was that uh, at week 48, you only had 2% of patients in both arms, whether they stayed on the baseline regimen with boosted PI or they went to Bictegravir, TAF, and FTC 
uh, had virologic failure or when had their viral load go above 50 copies. So very, very effective. The Tango study was looking at switching to just dilutegravir and 3TC versus continuing a TAF-based three-drug regimen. And again, um, randomized trial uh, to be included. Adults had to have a viral load of less than 50 uh, for greater than six months on a TAF-based ARC regimen. And so they switched some of the patients over to dilutegravir 3TC. Some of them they kept on the TAF-based regimen. And as you can see from the bar graph here, those who uh, had their viral load less than 50 were very comparable in the switch arm as well as continuing on the TAF-based ART arm. And with the confidence intervals, uh, when you look at the analysis of the primary endpoint of viral loads greater than 50 or the secondary endpoint of viral loads less than 50, switching to dilutegravir and 3TC was not inferior to TAF-based antiretroviral therapy. So again, um, comparable results that you're seeing with maintaining viral suppression when you switch to a two-drug regimen as opposed to a three-drug three TAF-based regimen. One of the questions that always comes up nowadays, particularly with TAF, is about lipid changes. And this was uh, from the Tango study as well. And it was in the analysis excluding those with baseline uh, lipid-modifying agent use, so they weren't on um, lipid-lowering therapy. Lipid changes favored switching to dilutegravir and 3TC versus continuing on the TAF-based ART in the overall population. However, when stratified by previous use of boosting agent, you saw statistically favorable changes with dilutegravir and 3TC, again, versus the TAF-based ART, um, and that persisted, persisted in that boosted subgroup. So as you can see, for lipid changes, uh, the take-home message here is it may be a good idea um, or may be helpful from a lipid profile perspective to switch your patients to dilutegravir and 3TC instead of keeping them on a TAF-based three-drug regimen. And then also with Tango, they looked at HbA1c, fasting glucose, and fasting insulin changes at week 48. Uh, this wasn't as clear-cut as what we found with the lipid trials. And so for A1c and fasting glucose, those changes were minimal when uh, people were switched over to dilutegravir and 3TC as opposed to staying on TAF-based ART. Um, uh, but the fasting insulin changes statistically favored dilutegravir and 3TC versus continuing the TAF-based ART in the boosted subgroup. So again, boosted PIs, um, boosted medications may have shown a little bit of a favorable uh, profile when you switch to dilutegravir and 3TC and a trend for the unboosted group, as you can see from the numbers here. So looking at weight changes, um, the short story for this in the Tango study, the weight change at week 48, the overall weight gains were minimal compared to the two arms. And again, uh, Tango was looking at continuing people on TAF-based ART versus switching to dilutegravir and 3TC. And as you can see from the numbers here, um, they weren't really remarkable with that. So uh, I think it's one of those things where we talk about weight gain. Um, me, myself, when I see uh, patients in clinic, I am seeing a lot of weight gain on TAF, but I haven't had enough of a sample with my own personal uh, patients when I switch them over to say conclusively one way or the other, whether that switch is beneficial for weight loss or um, prevents any further weight gain. And so obviously with the weight gain, it's a huge concern for our patients uh, cosmetically and also for the risk of metabolic disease and chronic illness later, diabetes, sleep apnea, those kind of things. There are going to be studies, and we could have anticipated this, that would evaluate this. So this is one study called the DO-IT study, 
using giraverine uh, with people living with HIV who have significant weight gain on INSTEs and TAF. And this is ACD, ACTG trial 5391, where they took um, overweight or obese patients uh, defined as a BMI greater than 27.5 who are on raltegravir, dolutegravir, or bictegravir, plus either FTC TAF or TDAF. Um, I'm sorry, just TAF, FTC TAF or 3TC TAF with an unintentional greater than 10% weight gain over the prior one to three years. And they are randomizing, this is a phase four trial going on right now, randomizing to Duravarine daily plus uh, FTC TAF or 3TC TAF, uh, Duravarine uh, 100 milligrams daily plus FTC TDF or 3TC DDF or continuation on the INSTE-based regimen they're going to be looking for weight changes over 48 weeks and some secondary outcomes as well. So hopefully we'll be hearing uh, some results from that, that study uh, coming up. Then also the DEFINE study, uh, switching to Deronavir, Cobacistat, uh, FTC, and, and TAF in patients living with HIV who have a rapid gain, weight gain on INSTE. It's the same kind of concept. Uh, they're taking participants who are on an INSTE-based and TAF-based regimen who have significant weight gain. Um, and I don't see that defined here, but it may be also 10% seems to be what we see a lot of times. And uh, randomizing them either to switch over to Darunavir, Cobacistat, FTC, and TAF, or continuation on their INSTE regimen, which with the option of week 24 to, to move them on. And the primary uh, endpoint is going to be looking at body weight in this case. So again, as we're seeing these high barrier to resistance INSTE medications, we're seeing TAF take over as far as what people are taking and being put on both for switching and for antiretroviral naive. And we're seeing these lipid changes, some things with uh, blood sugar, metabolic profiles, and weight gain. These are the studies we're going to be really interested in as we move forward to see what's going on. Just a note about safety of full dose lamivudine in patients with a um, EGFR of less than 50. This is just looking at the recommended dosing in each of these bars uh, for different uh, varied creatinine clearance rates and including dialysis where it would be 100 or 150 milligrams a day and then from 15 to 29 uh, creatinine clearance you're at 150 and for above 30 you're going to look at 300 daily and basically they compared um, their concentration max, their max concentration levels uh, and simulated 3TC AUC values in participants with impaired renal function consistent with their historical data. So there is kind of a simulated estimate that's going on here. But what they found that lactic acid levels were normal uh, within all these patients and there were no adverse events. There's only about 34 patients in this study, um, but the take home, as you can see with the asterisk at the bottom of this slide, as of March, 2021, and 3TC is indicated for patients with the EGFR less than 30. So if you have a patient that has chronic kidney disease, and some of these other um, chronic medical conditions that could be impacting these conditions um, or impacting their, you know, how they absorb their medications and how they process their meds, it could be safe to switch them over if they're virologically suppressed to dolutegravir and 3TC. All right, so going back to the outcomes case that we talked about earlier, you are providing care for a patient with long-term virologic suppression on first-line efavirenz, FTC, and TDF, would like to switch to another single tablet ARC regimen because of neuropsychiatric adverse events. Uh, the patient is at high risk for cardiovascular disease and also receiving a proton pump inhibitor for the management of GERD. So if you're trying to switch, you're going to want something that's not going to cause a heart attack in them 
or is not going to be uh, have reduced concentration because they're on a proton pump inhibitor. So the best answer would be either dolutegravir 3TC or bictegravir FTC and TAF. Okay, so simplifying ART in the context of known multidrug resistance. Patient case uh, three, this is the background. 60-year-old man diagnosed with HIV in 90 when he experienced weight loss, thrust, and dysphagia. Was treated with fluconazole and improved rapidly. No HIV-related complications since then. The initial CD4 cell count was 110. Was treated with various NRTIs until 1996, and then started to use various combinations that include and then NRTIs plus unboosted PIs like sequinavir and endinavir, some of the older ones, and NNRTIs such as nevirapine and efavirenz, never consistently achieved viral suppression. Uh, the genotype in 2007, while receiving uh, lapinavir and ritonavir plus abacavir and 3TC, uh, the viral load was about 1,200, T cell count was 300, so his immune system uh, was brought up a little bit, but still not virally suppressed. And you see the mutations there from NR, NRTI, NNRTI, and PI, some of the mutations. He was placed on a daily regimen of darunavir, ritonavir twice daily, plus rautegravir twice daily, plus etravirine twice daily. And he's been virally suppressed since then, which was 2007. So now it's about 15 years later, he's asking if he's taking a simpler regimen. If, if this patient came to me, my response would be, you're amazing for being on this complicated regimen for um, 15 years. Uh, and I'd be surprised that a provider hadn't tried to uh, switch him over to something a little bit simpler. Well, with this gentleman, um, reasons to consider ART switch are multivactorial. So to simplify the regimen, to increase the tolerability, to mitigate drug-drug interaction, eliminate food or fluid requirements, to reduce cost, all of those are at play here. I do want to take a moment to talk about what would be inappropriate, um, an inappropriate reason for switching someone during viral suppression. You don't want to just switch them because you have a newer, shinier uh, regimen that everybody's on. Um, that's not always a good reason. And then also, if you're trying to reduce costs at the price of toxicity or intolerance for your patient, that's not a good reason either. So according to DHHS, switching regimens in patients with viral suppression and drug resistance um, just reading the first point here, because it's, uh, it's pretty important uh, to remember this. Patients who have prior drug resistance can be switched to a new regimen based on their ART history and resistance testing results. We do have some data on within-class switch. If you have a high-resistance barrier drug, uh, at least one like daltegravir to bictegravir, um, we don't have direct data on between-class switching from one high-resistance barrier drug, such as darunavir, boosted darunavir, um, to big tegravir or dalutegravir. Um, we do have some theoretical uh, support for that, um, as well as some other support that says that dalutegravir works well uh, when switched to a, from a boosted PI in patients who have uh, some virologic failure and resistance uh, from the Donning study. But let's talk a little bit more about these. The outcomes, well, actually, we're going back to the outcomes case. This was the one we saw uh, earlier in the conversation, earlier in the presentation. You're providing care for a patient with a history of drug resistance. They have an M184V uh, and a K103N who is currently virologically suppressed on a four-pill, twice-a-day ART regimen. The patient would like to switch to a simpler regimen with fewer pills. Based on the current DHHS guidelines, how would you counsel this patient? 
Okay, good. Um, so most of you got the correct answer right. Switching to a new regimen should be feasible when considering their ART history and resistance testing results. Excellent. Um, so between class switching with underlying resistance, um, the switch mark results, which we'll go over soon, uh, warned of us switching from a high barrier resistance to low barrier resistance. And um, we'll take a look at that in a second. You ha can have viral suppression being maintained by boosted PIs and high resistance barrier instes like dagutegravir or bigtegravir when you have only one accompanying NRTI is fully active. So if you have one of those high resistant barrier medications, either a boosted PI or an instey like dalutegravir or bigtegravir, if you have one other fully functional NRTI, it's better than having that with the low resistance drug. You have a higher likelihood of getting um, viral suppression. And then switching from a, a one low barrier drug from another is effective in those with multi-drug resistance. For instance, elvitegravir, uh, switching that from rautegravir as with the switch from having darunavir. Um, plus elvitegravir, cobacistat, FTC, and TAF. Uh, but the question remains, what about boosted PI to a high barrier insti, like dalutegravir or bigtegravir switch, uh, if you do have some underlying resistance? So let's look into that. Uh, first note about the switch mark trial. This is a cautionary tale between class switches um, from randomized double-blinded trials in which virologically suppressed patients either continued lipinavir or ritonavir-based regimen, calitra-based regimen, which is popular, uh, over a decade ago, or switch to a raltegravir-based regimen. As you can see from both of these graphs, the switch to raltegravir is in the blue. You can see the rates of people who are virologically suppressed, less than 50 copies, is consistently less than that for um, lipinavir and ritonavir. So again, raltegravir is one of those low barrier to resistance NSTE-class medications um, that may not necessarily be a good switch when you're going from a double uh, a boosted PI like uh, darunavir or adizanavir. As you can see here, if underlying resistance is involved, um, the reduction of efficacy with viral suppression reduces to 77% for raltegravir-based regimen versus 92% for lipinavir ritonavir. So there is a significant difference, particularly in the background, in the background of underlying resistance. So evidence of high resistance barriers with dalutegravir and bigtegravir, we're very well aware of this. Um, rare reports of emergent resistance in clinical practice with dalutegravir. Dalutegravir has been found to be superior to raltegravir as well as uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, and treatment experienced patients with resistance. And we do also know that bigtegravir, FTC, and TAF is shown to be non-inferior to dalutegravir plus FTC-TAF or FTC-TDF in suppressed patients with NRTI resistance. I'm gonna take a look at a couple of things now. This is the dawning study where you had patients with a virologic failure on their first line and NRTI uh, plus two NRTIs. They were switched to dalutegravir or lopinavir ritonavir plus two NNR NRTIs. And as you can see, looking at the bar graph with the blue being dalutegravir plus two NRTIs, the orange being lopinavir ritonavir versus two NRTIs, you can see um, much higher response with uh, how many patients are actually virologically suppressed, less than 50 copies. And particularly in the uh, intention to treat extension on the left side of this bar graph, it actually reached the p-value for superiority with that. So again, dalutegravir is pretty much a workhorse when it comes to this, um, with few people getting resistance that was uh, clinically significant. Also with the dawning trial, this is a graph that shows virologic response by the presence of the M184 mutation and use of 3TC or FTC at week 48. 
Again, as you can see, the dolutegravir-based regimens much better at uh, maintaining virologic suppression, whether you use 3TC or whether you don't use 3TC, and whether they have an M184 mutation or not. And whatever magic that we've known historically that the M184 mutation, although it makes 3TC or FTC not work as well, it increases um, the virus's susceptibility to other classes of medications. We're seeing this kind of play out. So even with this mutation, um, people can still maintain viral suppression at very high rates. All right, so study 380, uh, 430. This is switching from Bictegravir, FTC, and TAF from Dalutegravir and FTC uh, with either TAF or uh, TDF. This is a randomized uh, controlled trial as well. So you had patients who were on Dalutegravir and FTC, uh, either paired with TAF or TDF, with a viral load less than 50 copies for greater than three to six months, no known NSD resistance, and no previous virological uh, failure on NSDs. They were either switched to Bictegravir, FTC, and TAF, or maintained on the Dalutegravir-based regimen. Of note, you'll see down here in the green, uh, documented or suspected NRTI, NNRTI, or PI resistance was permitted in the participants. And the primary endpoint was a viral load greater than 50 uh, by week 48. And looking at these outcomes, you can see less than 1% had a viral load in both uh, treatment arms had a viral load of greater than 50, but uh, Bictegravir was 93% uh, maintained viral suppression less than 50 compared with the Dalutegravir-based regimen. And as you can see, it fell within the confidence intervals too for the primary endpoint of greater than 50 copies. In short, switching from a Dalutegravir-based uh, regimen uh, with TDF, FTC, or TAF, FTC, uh, to Bictegravir-based regimen, um, you can maintain viral suppression pretty easily. So within classes, that works just fine. And this slide is just demonstrating with the same study uh, after the switch from Dalutegravir to Bictegravir. Regardless, uh, what you're seeing is that a viral load of greater than 50 was actually not observed in any patient with pre-existing NRTI resistance. And this is at week 48. So you look across the board here, whether it's K65 uh, with greater than or equal to three TAMs, M184, the data is suggesting that switching one high-resistance barrier drug for another, i.e. dalutegravir to bictegravir, may be effective in patients with viral suppression, even in the setting of underlying resistance, which is a scary concept to a lot of us, um, but the data seem to really prove this out thoroughly. And this is also a study, and a, a lot of the critique, um, deservedly so, of a lot of our clinical trials is that they don't include enough Black patients, um, despite the fact that we represent, you know, up to 50% of the new cases uh, in major uh, cities and just across America. So the BRAVE study actually looked at that, the impact of uh, baseline resistance on outcomes following a switch to Bictegravir, FTC, and TAF in um, Black patients who are living with HIV. And they switched from a baseline regimen of two NRTIs plus a third agent, um, and that could have been an NNRTI or a PI, to Bictegravir, FTC, and TAF in people who are virologically suppressed. And again, the patients in this study were all Black. And the switch to Bictegravir, FTC, and TAF was found to be non-inferior to those remaining on the, uh, the baseline regimen at week 24. And as you can see from the chart here, whether they had NNRTI resistance or just NRTI resistance in general, or an M184, you can see the Bictegravir-based uh, regimen performed very well with high uh, rates of maintaining viral suppression as compared to when they just kept them on their baseline regimen. 
And then um, switching to Bigtegravir, FTC, TAF, and patients with HIV and pre-existing M184. This is a pooled analysis of six phase three studies, uh, viral suppression at baseline. You had M184 detected in about 10% of the, the patients in these studies. And the viral load, less than 50 copies at the last visit post-switching to Bigtegravir. Of all patients, 99% uh, remained undetectable, less than 50 copies. With versus without M184 mutations, 99% versus 98%, and there was no treatment emergent resistance. Again, this is confirmation that when someone is vir virologically suppressed, even in the setting of having an M184 mutation, um, which usually knocks out your 3TC or FTC effectiveness, you can confidently, confidently switch them to a Bictegravir FTC TAF-based regimen because you're going to have the workhorse with a high resistance barrier in Bictegravir plus the TAF, which is still active um, and still maintain viral suppression at a very, very high rate. So just a couple words and then we'll wrap up about proviral HIV DNA genotype, which a lot of people are talking about in requiring resistance data. So this DNA uh, archive genotype, it sequences mutations in cell-associated proviral DNA. It is less sensitive than the cumulative RNA genotypes that we get. Um, at the bottom, I, I want to direct your attention to that third bullet point um, and, and the sub-bullet point uh, under here. This was a switch to um, a, a single tablet regimen among virologically suppressed patients with the M184 mutation. The M184 mutation detected with the DNA assay was only in 48% of the screen patients. So again, um, with this DNA genotype, I know it's a popular thing that people are talking about, but it may not be as accurate as some of the traditional genotype studies that we get with the RNA. So the DHHS guidelines uh, for the recommendations of this, they say proviral DNA genotyping can be considered for individuals with a suppressed viral load, particularly if complex or semi-complex pre-existing resistance is suspected. And at the bottom, you need to interpret it with caution because proviral genotyping may miss some or all pre-existing mutations. I tend to look at it as something you have in your back pocket for extremely complicated patients, but typically you can kind of look at both their history, what medications they were on, and combine that with the genotype results that you may have from the RNA, and then make your decisions there uh, based on whether you want to switch when they have a viral load. All right, so just wrapping up, and I apologize because we had a lot of slides and we don't have much time for questions at all, but just reviewing our three cases and the proposed switch set uh, strategies. For patient, patient one um, who had the daily pill fatigue and had been in uh, rehab but now wanted to get on something different, the optimal switch would be long-acting injectable cabotegravir and rilpivirine monthly, but you need to monitor his adherence as well as vaccinate against hepatitis B. For the second patient um, who had the multiple comorbidities, the optimal switch would be dalutegravir and 3TC one pill daily it's not approved officially for EGFR less than 50, but it's likely to be safe in those settings. And we had a couple of slides talking about that. And then simplifying art in the context of known multidrug resistance, the optimal switch would be Bictegravir, FTC, and TAF, uh, one pill daily. We have limited data on the use of this strategy with multi-class resistance, but encouraging data from switches as long as, like I said before, you have active TAF and active Bictegravir, you should be fine. Um, if they're virologically uh, suppressed to begin with. Great. Thank you very much to Dr. Malbranch, and thanks to listeners for joining in. 
As a reminder, to view the full educational program, Contemporary Management of HIV 2021, on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you.